You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. John chapter 12 says in verse 20, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. That's, that's our text focus again. We're going to read a little bit more here, but I want you to th- remember that verse. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am... There shall also my servant be, if any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? He's thinking about the cross at this point. Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. And others said, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. That's talking about the cross. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. It's talking about Satan. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This, he said, signifying what death he should die. And you say, well, he didn't really answer the Greeks' request. They say, sir, we would see Jesus. And he didn't say, okay, let him come see me. But he does point to the cross and he says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. So really, he does answer their question because they come looking for him. And he says, really, right now is not what you should be looking toward. The cross is when I will open my arms to the whole world for salvation. And it's a different kind of an answer, but there's a principle back up in 24 that I, want to, I really want to focus on. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And that verse led, led me this morning to preach uh, what, what comes up must first go down. And that you can't enjoy the benefits of the resurrection without embracing the sacrifices of self-denial. And, and I'm going to f- focus on that thought again tonight, but I want to focus more on the applications because there really are a lot of applications to that, to that principle. And I won't do it justice. I won't get to all of them, but there's one particularly that I want to focus on that's in the text where it says, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. Meaning there's no lonelier place to be than when you refuse to submit to God. You'll always be lonely. And I hope that we can get into some of that. That and other applications this evening. I'm calling it just from bulbs to lilies. It's just a follow-up to this morning. Almost more of an application type message. And I hope it will be a help. Let's pray. Father, uh, I need you to help me. It's different than what I normally do. You know that. 
And yet I think the application is worth it. I think the principle is worthy of, of repeating. And I pray that you'd help us tonight to uh, focus in on where, how this applies to us. And help us each then to seek how, what areas of our lives are we bulbs right now, but you want to transform into lilies. pray that you'd help us this evening. Bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So I, I do want to clarify it from right up front, you know, sometimes um, on a Sunday night, I've done this a few times where I'll preach a follow-up to the Sunday morning message, and uh, you should be thankful that I split it into two messages. So it could have been a lot longer this morning. Um, it, when I do that, I just want you to understand it's not because uh, I think that um, you're not getting it, as much as I think a principle that's repeated is a principle remembered. And, and sometimes, and if you come to every service, then you're hearing a message in Sunday school, you hear a message on Sunday morning, you hear, hear a message Sunday night, that's at least three messages that you hear every, every Sunday, and sometimes, at least for me, I mean, I have a tough time just keeping track of all that I heard, and I do think there's value in repeating a principle from Sunday morning to Sunday night for our, for our memory's sake. So, just so you know, I actually, this, this weekend was different, I actually had three messages that I had that I could pre- have preached tonight, and this is the one that I, I, I felt like I should do. So most of you are here this morning, and so I just want to deal with an aspect of this, but I want to give you some reminders of the text, just the background of the text, and I'll try to do this as a summary pretty quickly because most of you were in here. We do have some that weren't. So uh, this, when we get to John 12, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead, and everyone's talking about it. Everyone is buzzing about Lazarus. So it's the week of the Passover, and they're coming from all over Israel. They're coming up to Jerusalem, uh, but they're all talking about Lazarus. Just a chapter before, Jesus raised him from the dead. And, and, we, and we have a few verses here in the text that, that say they're, they're coming to see Lazarus. They're, they're thinking about Lazarus. They want to see not just the one that raised him from the dead. They want to see Lazarus himself. So Bethany's just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And we know that many people came to Bethany before they went to Jerusalem, just so they could see Lazarus. They, they want to see if he's... It, look at verse 9, chapter 12, verse 9. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there in Bethany, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. So they're talking about him. They're thinking about him. Look at verse 17. The people, there, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause, the people also met him. For that they heard that he had done this miracle. They were excited about a resurrection. They were excited that somebody had been brought to life and they're buzzing. The Passover week was always buzzing. There are people everywhere. I mean, some, Josephus says that it would swell from 30, 20, 30, 40,000 to, uh, he, he said 2 million. And some people think that's an exaggeration. Um, some people on the lower end say 250,000 people would come. And whether it's 250,000 or 2 million, that's a lot of people in Jerusalem. And these whole families would come and they would spend the week. And it's a sober week. And it's a looking back to the Exodus in uh, the book of Exodus and, and how God brought them, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt from their bondage. So the families would come and they would bring a lamb to slaughter every year. And every year they'd come back and they'd bring another lamb. And so you can imagine there's lots of noise, there's lots of excitement, there's lots of buzzing. And, and they're just talking about this year, talking about Lazarus. They're talking about Jesus. Little do they know that this is the week Jesus would die as well. 
And so uh, when Jesus comes from Bethany to come into Jerusalem, he's riding on an ass. The people line up on the streets and, and they take palm branches and they wave them before him. And they cry Hosanna and they say he's the Lord, he's the king. And he has come, in their minds, he's coming to save them from Rome. Little did they know he was coming to save them from their sins. And so he, they, he's coming in, everyone's excited, everyone is pumped up, they're getting ready and they're, they, they want to see Jesus and they want to see what he might do. They, they want to see Lazarus, they're excited. What they don't realize is, is that Jesus Christ wasn't just coming to rescue their physical bodies, he was coming to save their spiritual lives. He was coming to save their souls. He was coming to transform them from what they were to what they could be. And it reminds me of that. I don't know if you ever saw this show. It's probably 15 or 20 years old. It's called the Extreme Makeover Home Edition. And it started, and we watched the show a few times, and frankly, I found it very annoying. So we didn't want, because they would line, anyway, they'd line everybody up when the house was done, and there's a guy in a mega, a mega, a mega horn, or what do they call those things? Whatever it is, a bullhorn. And he's saying, move that bus. And everyone would move the bus and freak out when they saw the house. And it just, it just kind of drove me crazy. I don't know why. But I watched it a few times because uh, I'm married to an HGTV gal. Okay? And so we would watch this show. And at first, the, the extreme makeover would be like a room or two. They would, they, would, they would transform a room. They would go in and they'd fix these rooms up and make them really great. And then pretty soon they started expanding it. Now there's two rooms in the bathroom and now the living room and now the kitchen and then pretty soon a whole floor and then the basement too. And then pretty soon they, the show got to the point where they were like, this house isn't worth keeping. So they'd come along with bulldozers. They would take the whole house down and they would rebuild a house in a week. It's like, I don't know that I want to live in a house built in a week. So they, they would build this house, transform it. And honestly, you know, it really, sometimes I think that we as Christians think that, that, that Jesus Christ came to renovate a couple of our rooms. And he came to like do a new paint job or maybe change out some wallpaper. Does anybody do wallpaper? Um, maybe change the carpets and maybe do a couple fixtures and maybe just kind of renovate the surfaces but, that's, but honestly, the way that show started, that's how most Christians live. They think it's a little TLC, and that's all that God really came to do in my life. But that's not the case. Actually, when, when Jesus Christ comes into your life, he doesn't come to fix up what's already there. He comes to, to wipe it all clean and give you something brand new. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's what? He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that's what Jesus Christ comes to do in our lives. That's what he's coming to do here at this Passover. He's not coming to just fix a few things. This isn't TLC. No, this is a complete bulldozing and rebuild. That's what he wants to do in our lives. Romans 12, uh, 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but what's the word be What? transformed and what does that mean do you know the the greek word that's the root of that is metamorphosis it's a, a butterfly you know a caterpillar uh when it when it turns into uh, it goes into the cocoon it builds the cocoon and comes out a moth or it comes out a butterfly you know you don't look at them at the the cat the moth or the butterfly and you don't say well that's a better version of of a caterpillar no, it's a new creature. It's brand new. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about here in John 12. He's not looking to just renovate. He's not looking to just clean up some surfaces. He's not looking to make it look better. He's not looking to add a little TLC. He came to transform people's lives. But look at what's required as we go through this text. Um, They come with a sincere request. The Greeks come saying, sir, we would see Jesus. And they come seek out Philip and Andrew. And like I said this morning, Philip and Andrew have Greek Greek names. And so I just think it's a good testament to the fact that that we ought to be uh, we ought to be heavenly minded, but not to the point that we're no earthly good. Yeah, the Greeks came to Philip and Andrew because they felt like they could relate. Those are the men they felt like they could relate to. And, you know, we ought to be really good at relating to lost people. And when we go to their doors and we try to invite them to church, we shouldn't just go in with guns blazing. Let's, let's go in and try to relate to them on a personal level. You never know what seeds you're planting just by being a friend to somebody. And, and the Greeks came to Philip and Andrew and they, they could relate. I know it's a side point, but I think it's worthy of looking at. But, but they come asking to see Jesus. And in some ways, I, I kind of view them as, like, as rubbernecking. You know what rubber, a rubbernecker is? You ever heard of that? It's like when you're driving down the road and there's somebody pulled over and everyone's slowing down to see what's happening. It's like they're pulled over. I mean, and, or, or when there's an accident and, and traffic backs up for miles because not because of an accident in the road, but because everyone's stopping to look. And sometimes it's on the other side of the freeway and the, yet traffic is backed up. It's, it's a little bit like rubbernecking. I think that's what's going on in some ways here. That everyone's heard about Lazarus. Everyone's heard about Jesus. And even now the Greeks are coming to find out what's happening. They're, they're coming to see what's going on. And this is a turning point. We may think, well, you know, they're just, they're just curious or they're just, they just want to see what's happening. But this is a turning point in the gospel because we're about to see Jesus transition from his ministry specifically to the Jews to a ministry that includes the Gentiles. And like I said this morning, we should be thankful that that happens. Philip and Andrew come to Jesus. They say, there's some Greeks here to see you. And he doesn't say, okay, let them on in. No, he gives a surprising response. And he starts with the words, the hour has come. And, and to this point in the book of John, it's always been the hour's not come. The hour's not come. Well, now these Greeks, these Gentiles come to see Jesus. And he's saying, okay, the hour is come. I think it's, a, it's an important picture of what's happening here. The hour has come. And he says that the Son of Man might be, should be glorified. And he's talking about the fact that he'll no longer be in this, this human body on earth, that he'll ascend to heaven, he'll be returning to his glory, he'll re- sit down at the right hand of his father, and, and he'll be glorified. But then he also says there are some things that happen to happen, have to happen before that, though. The hour has come, I will soon be glorified. But before that happens, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So he says, okay, so it's coming that I will soon be glorified. I'll soon be back at my father's right hand. I'll soon be back where I'm supposed to be. But before that happens, let me give you a little illustration, a farming illustration. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. You would have to think, well, maybe they're thinking, okay, what is he talking about? Well, this farming illustration is, is something they probably would have understood. And what he's saying is that unless the seed from the plant is willing to be buried in the ground, it will never produce fruit. And he uses this illustration, and, and this morning I used the illustration of a lily bulb, and and how this bulb right here is not much to look at. It's, it's just, it's, it's kind of ugly. 
You know, it's just not much to look at. It's not very impressive. And, and, uh, and honestly, if I was just to set this right here on the pulpit, it, that's all it would ever be. It will never be more than a lily bulb if it stays right there. So one day I decide to put it in the ground and put it in dirt and it goes into the ground and, and I think, well, it looks like it's dead now. Okay, the end of the lily bulb, it's, it's underground, it's dead. But what I don't see happening is it's soaking in the nutrients in the water and then a little sprout, a root is coming out the bottom now and starting to attach itself to the soil so it has even more ways to bring in the nutrients. And then a shoot is coming out the top and heading toward the sun. And again, it blows my mind that this stuff happens. We don't even think about it anymore. But billions upon billions of times a year, this is the process going on underground and we're not even paying attention. But it's a miracle of nature and that God put into place. And so this, this shoot comes and eventually gets to the surface. It starts soaking in the sun from the top, soaking in the roots or the nutrients and the water from the bottom. And it becomes a full-fledged plant eventually. And, and eventually it becomes a lily like these two plants right here. And then the process can begin again when from this lily these tiny seeds can become bulbs. And eventually someday there will be another bulb that you can plant in the ground. In the ground it would reproduce and, and produce much fruit. But this bulb right here had to be willing to be planted in the ground before fruit could come. You can't just set it on the pulpit or set it wherever you want and it happens. It had to die. And if it's never planted, it will never be more than what it is. If it's never planted, it will never produce fruit. If it never dies, it will never rise. And that illustrates what Jesus is about to do. He desires fruit. And when the Greeks come, these Gentiles come, he wants to offer salvation to the whole world. He wants everybody to be saved, but he knows that that can't happen before he dies, before he's willing as like a plant or a seed, he's willing to go into the ground and die. Not until that happens can he rise again and bear much fruit. But he knows what has to happen before he's glorified. He knows he's about to be tortured. He knows he's about to be mocked. He's about to be full of shame and he's about to be crucified. He's about to be forsaken by his father. He's about to die in front of all the people he loves in agony. He's about to be buried in somebody else's tomb. He's about, he's about his disciples are about to be scattered and, and they're going to lose all their hope and Peter's going to go fishing and it's just going to be awful. But he's, he knows, though, on the other hand, this is part of his father's plan. When Jesus said, except the corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bear forth much fruit. He is acknowledging that God the father's plan includes his death. He, this has to happen if, before all the good stuff can happen. Jesus knew he had to die in order to produce life in other people. And as people are saved, as we're saved, as we are the fruit of Jesus Christ's death, then this truth is coming true before our very eyes. We are the fruit. His physical death and resurrection result in our receiving eternal life. I'm thankful he was willing to be planted in the ground. I'm thankful he was willing to say no to the things that his, his physical human body may have wanted. I mean, we know he's not looking forward to it. I mean, he says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. He knows what's coming, but aren't you thankful that he was willing to go to those links for us? What I love, though, is that Christ applied this principle to himself in the work on the cross. His death, it resulted in fruit. But he also applies the principle to us. 
See, we have to be willing to let go of our lives and our ways and our answers and trust Christ. And we can have all kinds of confidence that, you know, letting go, it will work for us. You know why we can have confidence that letting go of our lives and submitting ourselves to Jesus, you know how we can know that it's going to work for us because it worked for Jesus Christ? And, and, and like always, and I just want to point this out, like always, Jesus never asks us to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. When he says, if you don't hate your life, you're going you're gonna to lose it. If you, don't, if, you, if you hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you, if you hate your life, then you'll have life eternal. Now, and you say, well, that's not fair that we have to let go of the things we want. I mean, come on, that's not very fair. Well, here's Jesus Christ doing that very thing for our benefit. So when he says, I want you to follow me so you can be honored, I want you to let go of your life, he's doing the exact same thing. And if, friend, if the principle worked for him, then it can work for you too. If you'd be willing to die to yourself, God will allow your life to bear fruit that's transformed. Not just a little TLC, I'm talking like a bulldozing and rebuild and it works in salvation it works in how we follow Christ we have to be willing to let go friend I want you to get it this is significant even though it may not seem like it tonight if you are willing to let go of the life you'd rather live and follow Jesus Christ he will make your life better than you could ever make it on your own we can't have the fruit though unless we die and the truth is God wants to transform you from a bold to a lily. He's not content. He's not content with bulbs. He's not content with you living a life that's so less than what he wants you to live. He's, I mean, it, have you ever known somebody that, that you thought, and they've got so much potential, and if they would just get up and work... I mean, what God could do with them, I'm some of the most talented people I know have lived most of their lives and been complacent and lazy because they've, all they've ever done is get by with their talent. And yet, and, and I look at their lives and I think, you're, you know, their version of a bulb is better than, than the, my version of a lily, but they're living a bulb. They're just content to just sit where they are and, and not get involved and not work hard and not be all that they could be. But I want you to look at it this way, the bulb... We're going to just say the bulb is the default life. The bulb is the life that you live just because it's default. It's the way that you're living. And if I was to come up with a formula for, for bulb, I'm not a mathematician for sure. And so this may not all add up. But here's my formula. Present condition plus my own way or refusal to die equals present condition. I'm going to say it again. My present condition plus my own way equals present condition meaning if all if i live my life trying just doing my own thing living my own way all the things that i want the things that are natural to me if i never do anything more than what i want to do all i will ever only always be is a bulb that's the formula if I'm unwilling to die to myself, if I'm unwilling to submit to Christ, I can't transform myself in my own strength. I mean, I can maybe do a little TLC. I can maybe paint a few walls, but I can't bulldoze it and transform it. All I'll ever only be is a bulb if I, if I try to live life in my strength. But the bulb is the default, but the lily is divine. 
And the formula for that is the present condition, we're going to say the, pre- the present condition of the bulb plus God's way equals a supernatural result. So if I do things my way, all I'll ever only be is a bulb. But if I allow God to transform me and I live according to what he wants for my life, the the formula is present condition plus God's way or dying to self equals a supernatural transformation. Listen, there's so many applications. Christ's death and resurrection, honestly, it makes everything possible. I mean, he can transform every part of us. He can transform our sins. He can transform our weaknesses. He can transform our, our insecurities. We say, I don't have insecurities. <laughs> we all have insecurities. You know, I, I, when I love that verse, um, everybody's weird. Okay, maybe you haven't heard that one, but, <laughs> but you know it's true. We all have some weirdness about us. We're all insecure on some level. You know, God can transform your insecurities. God can transform uh, your limitations. Listen, if all we ever do is try to fix things in ourselves, all we'll ever be is a bulb. And we'll live with those things our whole life. But if we will submit and die to ourselves, Jesus Christ can transform even the things we think nobody could ever fix. He can take us from bulbs to lilies if we'd be willing to die to ourselves. And I just want to give you a few applications and then one primary application at the end. And I'm thinking about raising children. You know what? Um, the bulb is the default. Okay, remember. And, and it's easy to look at your children sometimes and be like, well, they're a bulb. And you take that however you want. But, but, I mean, all, all children are bulbs. I mean, they, none, none of them start out um, perfect and then, you know, just kind of lose it as they go. No, they're all bulbs. We all started that way. But parents who are content with children to remain bulbs, here's how they do it. Okay, here's their way. They focus on correction instead of training. You know, a parent who's willing to just allow his child to remain the bulb that he is, 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 is only fixing the things that come up that need to be corrected, but not really ever taking the time to invest in training that child. But the Bible says train up a child. Yeah, there's a rod of reproof. There's a rod of, rec- of correction. Um, but there's plenty of opportunities in your child's life for you as a parent to not just be reactive. See, when you, all you ever do is focus on correction, then you're just reacting to your child's mistakes. And you need to anticipate the things in their lives and train them. Take some time. And, and I mean, I, we've got a lot of things that we used to do when they were, they were kids. We would, I mean, the ver- first thing that we would do when we saw a, a spirit of rebellion rise in them is, is that we would have a session, we called it. Okay, we'd close the shades, lower the lights, is pray that nobody's walking by and say, we're in this for the duration. And we'd set our child in the spot and we would say, come. And if they didn't come, then we would walk to them and help them over to see, okay, this is what it looks like. And if they didn't do it the second time, then we would, we would spend a little time in correction. If they didn't do it the third time, a little time in correction. And some of our children, literally, it's, an, it's hours long. Some of our children, it's not just one session, it's multiple sessions. You know, but what we want is that when they're 18 months old, even less than that, I mean, 
12 to 18 months old is really when this will should be broken in them. But we, when we do that, what we're thinking is not them as an 18 or 18 month old or a two year old, but as an 18 year old. And they're in a situation where that could destroy their lives unless they make the right decision in that moment. The character seeds that were planted when they were 18 months old will suddenly come out and they'll be ready to face a situation like that because we won't always be around. And we've got to think about how our children don't just need correction, they need training. But if you're content, though, with a bulb, then just focus on correction. Parents that are, uh, who are content with the bulb condition, they're, they're defensive. You say, I am not defensive about my kids. You know, we're all, de- we're, we're all defensive about our kids. That's the bulb. That's the default. Meaning that it's not fun when somebody comes to you about your children and says, you know, say, well, they were doing this and I don't think they should be doing that. Or, you know, if they're running through the hallways and they're knocking people over and someone says, hey, slow down. You shouldn't be defensive in that moment. Truth is, I want somebody to tell my children. I should want that for them. I mean, who, who am I to think, well, you know, it shouldn't be coming from somebody else. Well, we'll do it with love, of course, but, but I want people to help me with my children. It takes a village sometimes, and I have blind spots, and all parents do. And if someone gets onto your child at church about something, um, then, then just accept the fact that God might be using that interaction to help change your child and help them. I mean, but parents that are okay with their children remaining bulbs, they're defensive about their kids. And I hope you're not defensive about your children. A lot of the things that, uh, that shape our children don't, don't sometimes come from parents. It comes from other godly adults in their lives. And, and, and don't assume, uh, don't be protective of your children. Don't assume that your children um, are, are no more than the adult that talked to them about something. You know, don't be defensive. Don't have, if you're okay with bulbs, have, you're going to have low expectations. But it's okay to raise the expectations for our children. It's okay to say, hey, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example. And think, well, our children don't have to, to sink to the level of cultural expectations. They can rise above those expectations. And honestly, we live in a culture that needs some, some examples of the believers in, in, a, in a Christian realm. I think a culture-centered home is, is going to just help, our, help your child remain a bulb. If, if culture has more impact in your home than Christ, I mean, a sports or academic mindset, you know, listen, uh, those, are, those aren't bad things. I mean, there's a ditch on both sides of the roads, and we need to be balanced, but, um, but, but we shouldn't be so focused on sports and so focused on academics that we fail to do the moral and biblical education at home, which, by the way, is the responsibility of mom and dad, according to Deuteronomy. You know, so our children, yes, they they can seem like bulbs, but um, if you if you want them to be transformed, don't just let them stay in that condition, and and don't don't just seek to do things your own way. Listen, the bulb is the default, but the lily is divine, and God doesn't want your children to remain like this. He wants them to turn into this. Parents who desire lilies, they, they think their children need to be trained, not just corrected. They'll take the time, and, and they need a healthy dose of God's word, and they give it to them. And if those sports and academics are great, that a moral education is what they're willing to, they're not willing to compromise on that. And they're accepting of criticism at times because they want their children to grow. And, and I was just talking to somebody this week and, and saying, you know, there's a little truth in every criticism, 
And, and I, don't, I mean, you don't always think, that, well, well so their motives aren't correct. Well, maybe, but there's always something to learn in the process of being criticized. What the person says may not even be true. But I'm telling you, I've never gone into a, me- a mode of self-examination and not come out better for it. So criticism is not all, I mean, it's, it's, it's helping us to, to uh, transform into lilies sometimes. A, a Christ-centered home. I, listen, remember, a present condition plus our own way equals present condition. But present condition, but, from, but doing things God's way, and that is dying to ourself, equals a supernatural transformation. Are we satisfied with bulb level in our homes? Or do we want lily level? God can transform a child. I think about church influence. And listen, if, if, we, if all we ever do is strive uh, you know, to protect our kingdoms, then all we'll ever be is bulbs. If, 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 we have a, if we're protective of our time, not willing to give our time to the Lord, and, or we have a consumer mentality that everything has to be for me, or we have a kingdom approach to our ministries, or we have to always get our way, that's fine. But just know this, that your present condition plus your own way will mean that you'll always be in your present condition. But the lily is the divine result. If you want God to transform your influence as a church member here at Eastside Baptist Church from bulb level to lily level, then be a giver instead of a taker. Be, uh, be committed as a disciple, not, not just looking for, okay, what are ways that people can be a blessing to me? Minister to other people. Take initiative when you see a need. And this morning, I mean, this week, I mean, just the initiative, Brother Ruckman on Monday, and, and then we had 20-something come and hand out tracts and flyers. And, and then every, I think just about every day this week, people were, were coming or taking flyers and handing them out. And Saturday, there's a group of, I don't know, 10 or more that showed up on Saturday morning to hand out flyers. Uh, this morning, I, um, I walked in and, and Brother Steve and Miss Lizette were putting guest bags together as a welcome committee. You know, they're putting these bags together. And I went and got the gift cards. I was just going to give them a gift card. And they put them in a bag and it looks nicer. And I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. But you know, they have initiative. They had initiative. And listen, it'd be good for us. If you want to remain a bulb, as far as a church member goes, and always just be a bulb, then just be ministered to. But God can transform you into a lily if you'll die to yourself and your own desires and think, okay, no, how can I be a blessing? As a church, I mean, this is a bulb. As a, as our default would be we're critical, we're petty, we're striving against. But a lily, God can transform us divinely into a church that, you know, listen, we're, we're working together. We're striving together, not against each other. We're working together for the gospel. And, and those small things aren't big enough to stop God's work, so we're not going to let it. All kinds of applications, but the one that I really want to want to get to tonight is that phrase, and it says, "Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone." Loneliness. That's the application mentioned in the text, and and I, I so I really wanted to focus on it tonight. One of the primary causes. For loneliness, and I think this is really interesting, is what Jesus Christ is dealing with is he's dealing with self-focus. He's dealing with selfishness. He's saying you have to be willing to let go of self. And one of the primary reasons that people are lonely is because they're selfish. They're, and Miss Judy and I, I, it was her birthday this week. I, I just think it's great that her birthday's on April Fool's Day. So, 
Oh, and Mia's birthday's tomorrow. <laughs> Speaking of self-focus. <laughs> that was funny, Mia. Happy birthday, by the way. So we've been talking about narcissism. And um, Judy, she's always talking about herself. So no. <laughs> we've been talking about narcissism a lot. I mean, for some reason, it just seems to come up. And, and so I got her a card. And, and you open the card. It said something at the front. It said something like, um, happy birthday from, you know, the whatever, the greatest person you'll ever, you'll ever see. And it opened the card, and it's a mirror. So she's looking at herself. And I got it for her because it reminded me of all of our conversations about narcissism. Okay, it's just a dumb little thing. But, but you know, narcissism is a very real problem. And we live in a culture that's only feeding selfishness. Our, our culture is, is feeding this concept of self-focus and individualism in our culture individualism is the highest virtue it's not service it's expressing yourself my truth my voice my opinions matter the most and if listen if you agree with popular opinion now you're not you're not even allowed to express yourself and if you disagree you know and i say this a lot but you're canceled and they're going to cancel so many people that truth won't even be able to be conveyed I mean, and truth will someday in our country be outlawed in cert, for certain subjects. If, if it goes against the norm or, or the truth of an individual, even a, not even a, a large group, or there's just fragments of society that fit into certain categories that you can't talk about anymore. I mean, I, and I'm just thinking about like this, the LGBTQ movement, and it, it has the plus there on the end of it because they don't even know where it's going to end. It's always being redefined. And so it's a perfect example there. Did you know that they're now purging military leadership based on the position on the LGBTQ community? They're literally, they're literally pushing men or leaders out of the military and high-ranking leaders if they don't have the position on LGBTQ that is the culturally accepted position anymore. The Equality Act, if you've ever read that or know anything about it, Um, it eventually will probably pass and it overrides the Religious Freedom Act, which means that as a church, we'll no longer just be able to stand up and speak truth uh, from the Bible even if someone thinks it's offensive to their lifestyle. It's coming. Eventually, we're going to be targeted. We'll probably be prosecuted at best and persecuted at worst for preaching, just preaching Bible truth. And the point is, selfishness rules the day. So if you don't think selfishness rules the day, get on social media. And it, I mean, you talk about a mirror, social media is a mirror. And it's, social media is like a mirror that says, look at me all day. And the bulb, the default is selfishness. I mean, that is our default. If you've ever held a newborn baby, there's no serving. They're not, they're not looking to be a blessing to anybody else. All they care about is what the need is of the moment. It's a selfishness. And that's the target of Christ's message. He's saying you're going to have to be willing to let go of yourself. That's why he says in verse 25, He that loveth his life shall lose it. The selfish people, they're going to lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about those who refuse to let go of their own way and their own lives. And he's combating selfishness. He's combating this mindset of being self-focused. And, and consider one effect of the uber-selfish worldview. He says, it abideth alone. 
See, you know who the loneliest people in the world are? The selfish ones. And what he's saying is, if a corn of wheat isn't willing to do what, what it ought to do, and it can't let go of itself, you know what? It'll just, it's just going to abide alone. It'll never be more than what it is. It will always be lonely. It will abide alone. And it makes sense that the selfish ones are the loneliest ones. Selfish people drive others away. You know, few people are harder to be around than, than those focused on self. They've got to win every argument. They've got to have all, they're only their opinion matters or is right. You ever been around somebody that's always right and they never admit they're wrong? Uh, they t- return everything into a conflict. They refuse to admit when they're wrong. No wonder selfish people are so lonely. Selfishness is like, is like not showering. You, you may not notice the smell, but everybody else does. It's like a porcupine. You know, you can't get too close without getting hurt. That's, that's selfishness. And you know, the truth is, you know, we're in our minds, we're all thinking, oh, that person's pretty selfish. Or that's pretty, that person's pretty selfish. But I wish we all had Judy's birthday card so we could open it and look in the mirror and realize, no, I'm pretty selfish. We've all gone through modes of just uber selfishness. So being self-focused and honestly, the times that I'm most full of myself, there's no room for anybody else and I'm the most lonely. There's a connection here. Selfish people, they keep God at arm's length. You know, selfishness is rooted in pride and God resists the proud and everyone that's proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord and a person full of self and pride can't possibly please God. The more selfish that we are, the further we are from God. He wants to transform us. He wants to even honor us. He said in verse 26, but, if we, but, but he can't if we're will, unwilling to let go of our own way. Selfish people put themselves in a position to never change. Now think about that. When you refuse to give up your way, you guarantee never changing. Even if someone wants to help you, if your response is always to bow up, you'll guarantee that they will never be able to help you the second time. They'll never come back. You know, you talk about a lonely place, never growing from where you are, not also not having anyone willing to help you grow because of how you respond. And if you say, well, you know, I must be doing really well because nobody ever comes to me and says, this is an area I really think you need to work on. It may be because your responses at other times have been so full of pride that people are afraid to come and talk to you. And listen, I, I, I would hate for us to be so, so holding on to our own way that we miss all the little ways that other people in our lives can help us grow. God wants you to grow. God, God wants you to go from this to that. But if we're so full of self, we'll never get there and, and, and we will abide alone. You know, there's nothing lonelier than a self-focused bulb. All it will ever be is what it is. So how do you overcome this? Well, Christ said in verse 26, follow me. Be willing to do what I do. In Philippians 2, what does he say? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I love that passage. But Jesus Christ was willing to let go of all of those things because he knew that God's, his father's plan was the best plan. He was willing to die to himself so that the best things that, that could have happened would happen. And we need to be willing to do the same thing. Letting go produce something better in us. Holding on, if Jesus Christ had held on, holding on would have limited what, what he could have done in us. All the fruit 
that you see, and look around the room, there's a lot of fruit from his willingness to die to self. And we, if, if God can do that in Jesus Christ, then he can do that in you. You just have to be willing to let go. Let go of yourself. Let go of your pride. Let go of the things you're holding on to. And you know what the result is? You have contentment in Christ. I mean, you, won't, you don't have to be alone. You don't have to abide alone. Uh, he says, if you will let go, you don't have to be lonely. You know that lily is the divine work. And it's time for us to let go of self. Let go of your time. Be willing to serve instead of be served. Be willing to let go of your ego. You know, view God as big and yourself as small. That's probably a pretty good life lesson there. Let go of your defensiveness. If somebody comes to you and they have something they want to mention to you, listen, don't immediately bow up. Listen. Let go of, your, of having to need uh, to receive the attention. Let go of needing friends more than being a friend. And you, you should choose to be a friend instead of waiting for others to befriend you. You know, the reason some are lonely is because they're waiting for someone else to be a blessing. And what Jesus Christ is saying, you know, don't wait, just be a blessing. You go out on the limb. You make the first move toward friendship. And it may not always turn into best friendship, but pleasing God has a way of bringing contentment. You won't have to abide alone. Loneliness is a product of selfish choices. And God has a way of fulfilling our desire for companionship when we stop living for ourselves. Does it mean that you'll have instant countless best friends? Well, maybe not. But the result of dying to self, he says, he promises. It will bring fruit to your life. And I don't know what that looks like. And I don't know what the fruit will be. And I'm not sure what all the promises will turn into. But if we would be less self-focused and less selfish and be willing to let go of our time and let go of all the things that we hold on to and just try to be a blessing to other people, he will return that into fruit in our lives. It's a promise, a principle from God. The world is full of lonely people. And they used to say, well, technology is going to bring us all together. Isn't that funny now? If the last year's taught us anything, it's taught us that Zoom and FaceTime will never be a good replacement for face-to-face interactions. Facebook friends aren't like real friends. Facebook or Instagram likes will never replace, and this is so cheesy, but I have to say it. Facebook likes, likes will never replace a friend's handshake or a friend's hug. And that personal contact is very important. Listen, loneliness, the reason some in here are lonely is because you're not willing to let go of something. And you're focused on self. That's the default position. And you could have loneliness is a bold, but contentment is a lily. And it's the divine result of letting go If you want to go from bulb to lily in your contentment, it requires death to yourself. Acceptance of Christ's selflessness. And you may have to let go of some things that you value for the sake of Christ. But what you release will be replaced by something far better. So just, you know, think about this. Look around. I'm almost done. There are a lot of former bulbs in this room. People that... Um, that were rough. And there may still be some that are a little bit rough, but that's okay. There's a lot of former bulbs in this room, but now they present themselves 
as lilies because God's transformed something in their lives that years ago they were willing to let go of. And only by letting go of it would it, would it be able to be planted in the ground and they'd be transformed into something different than what it was. And whatever is in your life that's keeping you from being this and you're still going to be this, it's time to let it go. It's time to plant it deep in the ground and let Jesus Christ transform it into something that you never thought even possible. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's a weakness. It's an insecurity. It's some entertainment in your life or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your marriage. Listen, you know you need to step up, but you haven't handed the reins to God and you're just holding on to this. But listen, this is all you'll ever have. You've tried in your own strength and it hasn't worked. And I know no one's perfect, but if you look around enough, you'll find some success stories that will convince you of this. If God can turn them into a lily, he can transform me. You know, I think about the Apostle Paul. I know this is a different kind of message, but bear with me. I think about the Apostle Paul. You talk about a bulb. You know, he was, he, he was murdering Christians. And, and I think if God can transform Paul into it, it, to a man that he writes something like, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, he wrote it. And if Paul could be transformed from a bulb to a lily, there's no reason that whatever it is in my life that's keeping me from being all I'm supposed to be, there's no reason I can't entrust that to God. If he can transform Paul's biggest problem into something usable and beautiful, he can transform my biggest problem into something usable and beautiful too. You know what it reminds me of Jeremiah 18 with the potter and the clay? You remember that? And how the potter... Um, had a piece of clay on the on the on the wheel and he was turning it and it was a, it was marred so what does it say he did he's oh he threw it out the window and gotten more clay no he took that same piece of clay and he made it new and it says it's he did he made it again another vessel but the phrase that got my attention as i was reading it in my bible reading is it sees as seemed good to the potter so the Lord says to Israel then, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? I mean, if a potter can take a piece of clay and now there's a mar and then reshape it into what he wants it as good as it, see, as it seems good to him, don't you think that the Lord can take what you are and you may have plenty of mars, you may have plenty of scars, and there's plenty of things that are wrong with your life that you wish were different, and, and you tried to change them, and they just won't change, but you've tried in your own strength. Well, don't you think if a potter can reshape a piece of clay into something that seems good to him, that the God of heaven can take your things, the bulbs that are in your life, that are keeping you from what you're supposed to be, if, if a potter can do that with a piece of clay, don't you think that the Lord can do that with your biggest weaknesses? Don't you think the Lord can do that with your biggest sins and your biggest problems and your biggest issues and that biggest thing in your life that you can't fix? If, if, God, if a potter can do that with clay, God can do that with a bulb. And he wants to. He's not looking for TLC. He's looking for a complete redo. And he can do that in your life. But you know what has to happen? You've got to be willing to be buried deep in the ground. 
and stop making life all about yourself. Stop being so self-focused. Stop thinking, I can do this myself. I don't need help. And just humble yourself before God. And say, I don't have the answers and I'm not content with just being a bulb. So if I'm going to be transformed, you have to do it, God. And come to the end of yourself and the end of your selfishness. Because honestly, isn't the loneliness killing you? Because as long as you refuse to be buried, it abideth alone. You'll always be lonely. But when you allow him to bury you deep in the earth and he starts to transform you into something you never thought you could be and suddenly there's much fruit and you think, okay, all those years of loneliness, man, what was I doing? I look around and see all the benefits and all the fruit and all the blessings. I could have had this so long ago if I would have just humbled myself. What seems to, you know... What, what God can do, listen, what, what God can do if we would just simply humble ourselves and say, I'm not willing to be a bulb anymore. I want to be a lily. It's time to let go of your plans. Let go of your, your answers. Let go of, of your way and let God do the work that only he can do. You can't enjoy the benefits of the resurrection before you embrace the sacrifices of self-denial. Let him transform the neediest areas of your life into a lily. Only he can do it. But he wants to do it. The only reason he isn't is because we're refusing to be planted. Stop being a bulb. Let God turn you into a lily. All right, let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know what area in your life that you're thinking, boy, I really need this transformed. I need this changed. I don't need to just cut, paint it and cover it up and, and I don't need something surface level. God, I need you to transform the very nature of this part of my life because it's not what it needs to be. And if all I ever do is lean on my own understanding, I will only always ever be a bulb. But God, I want to be a lily. And I, I pray that we would be willing to submit ourselves to be less self-focused to be tired of the loneliness and just come to the end of ourselves and let God do a work that only he can do, like a potter with clay. I know it's a little bit sporadic tonight, but I I hope that you've found a way that you can apply this to some area of your life. And if you have, let's give God the courtesy of response. Let's pray, and then we'll have Kath play. Father, I thank you for the truth. I I pray that you'd help overcome uh, just maybe some of the disjointedness in my own mind. But God, you would allow this truth to make a difference. I, I know in the end, if we were summarizing it, none of us want to be bulbs. We want to be lilies. But there's some area in our lives that we probably have to die to before that can happen. And I think probably all of us have something. Would you transform us? Would you take us from bulbs to lilies? But Lord, would you give us the strength to be willing to die to ourselves in order to see it take place? God, work as you will that your truth change us. Lord, help us to make a difference in our lives and our thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.